Well, hello. I am going live for the first time. So this is Power to Speak. I'm now apologies. It looks like we're not actually going live on LinkedIn, which is a real shame, but we'll um, take it from here. So I'm going to add Tom Morris. Thank you very much for coming along today, Tom. I'm going to add Tom to uh, the stream here. Yes, we've we've all that practice that I did the other evening, <laughs> I did a test run and went live. And now it's telling me that we haven't gone live on LinkedIn, but we are well, on Facebook. Link you and run over to Facebook <laughs> real quick. <laughs> we are on Facebook and we are on YouTube. So okay. that's, that hopefully uh, is where people will be able to find us. So, Tom, thank you so much for being here today. This, as you can probably tell, is my first ever live stream. But this particular live stream, and the reason that you are here with us today, Tom, is this is speakers speaking about speaking. And Tom Morris is a, a, a renowned keynote speaker, but more than that, is America's public philosopher. So welcome, Tom. It's great to have you here today. It's great to be with you, Jackie. This is going to be fun. <laughs> so you are a, not only a, a keynote speaker, but you are the author of 30 fiction and nonfiction books too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your speaking career. So I know you started out uh, as a, a professor in philo uh, philosophy. Yeah. How did you then transfer to speaking? Well, it's funny because I always thought being a professor would be great preparation for being a public speaker, right? Because you're in front of a group of people, you know, every day or every other day. But uh, I mentioned that once to my main agent uh, at a bureau that was sending me out all over the world. And he said, well, you know, actually, professors tend to make really terrible public speakers. And I said, well, why is that? It's the opposite of what I would have expected. He said, because most professors think it's their job to provide as much information as possible in the time allowed. But in public speaking, it's not first and foremost about packing in a lot of information. It's about impact. He said, in public speaking, the main thing you have to be concerned about is having a positive impact. All the information has to be subordinate to that. So don't overwhelm people with too much information. Make the best impact you can, you can make. And, and that, was, that was great advice. And it's something that fortunately I sort of naturally tended to try to do. I guess it was just my, my personality. And, uh, you know, it was, public speaking was the unexpected career for me. I, I thought I was going to be my whole life in the classroom, but about the late 80s, I guess it was, the Chamber of Commerce, a group of businesses in South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame was located, uh, a lady came to me and said, hey, we've heard how popular your classes are at Notre Dame. We're doing a project this year about ethics in the community. Would you come and give us a talk on that? Um, and rather than saying, well, I'm not the ethics guy at Notre Dame, you know, you got the wrong guy. I, I said, well, Sure, that sounds like something worthwhile to do. I thought I could, you know, build a bridge between the university and the community by 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 doing this. So, um, I read up really quick on business ethics, and I I read the books that young business people were reading then, the popular bestsellers about business, to find out what I could build on and what I might have to resist or correct. And I gave a first talk uh, called "The Ethics of Decision Making," and uh, everybody there practically asked me to come to their their civic club, their rotary club, their Kiwanis club, their real estate company, their bank, their church to give that same talk. And so for two years, I was going around the town giving free talks uh, to anybody who asked. 
And uh, then people started calling with, we have a budget for a speaker. I thought, wait, wait what? A budget? <laughs> this is new. Um, and I often have told people since then, I do this for free. It's so much fun. I mean, I did for two years just to make a positive impact. So again, Jackie, it was the, it was the unexpected career. I've learned the power of saying yes to new things that you might say, well, I'm not ready for that, or that topic is not one I really know about. Uh, but the more I say yes to interesting things, the more interesting my life gets and the more good I can do for other people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yes, the power of yes, power is, of yes. Is, is something really, really, really special. So I think we've, well, we've got, we've got a few people listening at the moment. My sister, Lisa, has said hello. Oh, good. So, Hello, Lisa. There you go. She, she was a big fan when you came, when you came on my, uh, my podcast. So oh, that's awesome. She's very happy to say hello. Um, yeah. So in, I, I'm interested, I suppose, because I, I kind of come from a teaching background too, as to the, the difference and of standing in front of a class and, and teaching a class in your yeah. specialist subject yeah. and then transferring onto a stage in front of an audience. Yeah. Is it, do you find, did, did you find it similar or more daunting, less daunting? Well, there are connections for sure. Like for example, the graduate students at Notre Dame once came to me and said, look, they teach us philosophy, but they never teach us how to teach. So would you come, my classes had won awards and things like that. So they said, would you come and teach us how to teach? Give us a session on how to teach. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So I ran to the library right, right away and, and checked out 20 books on how to teach. Now, I had been doing it for 10 years. My classes had won all these awards, but I thought I had to go find some books on how to teach. So I'd have something to say to these graduate students. So of the 20 books I checked out, 19 had about a paragraph's worth of ideas. And the rest of the book was just a waste. One book was really good. Mastering the Techniques of Teaching by a guy named Joseph Lohman. Now, we're going back 30 years. Um, his main thesis in the book is the classroom is a dramatic arena. Everything that happens in that room from the moment you enter to the moment you leave either conspires in favor of what you're trying to make happen or detracts from what you're trying to make happen. Ch take charge of the space. Create the drama needed to move people to where you would like to see them go. I thought, wow, what? I'd sort of been doing that naturally, but it's so good to see a guy who studied effective teaching say that. Well, of course, the same thing applies to public speaking. Any room you're in, I like to go, and I did this in Notre Dame, the day before classes started, I would go to whatever auditorium they were putting my class in that semester. I would sit in various places around the auditorium and imagine what it would be like to be a student there, what I would have to do to reach that student in that seat, to get their attention, to keep their attention, to get them excited about what we were talking about. I would always try to own the space. Now, it, it sounds funny, but um, I, I would say to myself, you know, this is going to be my house tomorrow at nine o'clock in the morning. I need to fill this space with something really good for everybody who's here. And, you know, that takes some of the nerves out of it, too. You get to the place early. I do. I've done that in uh, all these years of public speaking, too. If I can, I'll go into a room early. I'll try to take the measure of the space. I'll try to get comfortable there. I'll try to say to myself and, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The first time I was really nervous before a speech, I mean, really nervous. It was my first talk for 2,500 people. 
And probably before that, I'd had most of my audiences have been in the hundreds and maybe a, a few audiences, a thousand people, but never 2,500. And the, the president of this company came to me backstage right before I was on and said, you know, these aren't your typical clients, Tommy. These aren't, you know, well-educated, uh, high, high power finance people. Uh, these are, you know, mom and pop gas station owners who rent a few trucks on the side and they may never have heard of Plato and Aristotle. So he tells me this three minutes before I'm going out on the stage. And so instant panic, you know, I said to him, of course, no problem. What I do is universal. It'll relate to everybody. And I just thought to myself, you know, I got to, I got to bring everybody here in this room a gift. That's my job today to give, to love every person in this room, to give every person in this room a gift. So I started taking my mind off myself. Oh, are they going to like my stories? What about my references to all the philosophers? What am I going to do here? I started thinking about them. I'm going to give everybody here something good for their lives. And at the end of my talk, he said, well, that was the first standing ovation for a speaker we've, we've ever had. I didn't change my talk. I didn't uh, eliminate references to Plato and Aristotle. I just showed my care, my love, my concern, my enthusiasm for everybody who was in that room, that I was there for them. And then uh, a, a few years later, I was in my first, uh, uh, I went to a space the night before my morning talk. I was going to speak to 5,000 people for the first time. And I looked around this huge arena, and it was really overwhelming. Um, I saw also the one glowing light in this dark arena said exit. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to leave this place, go back to the airport, fly back home. I don't want to be. And then all of a sudden, a little voice in my head said, this is your house tomorrow. For an hour tomorrow, you own this place. This is your home. You get to be with 5,000 people. You're going to do some good for not... 12 people, not 100 people, for 5,000 people. Isn't that great? And so you take ownership of the space, and that's half the nerves. Now, nerve nervousness can be a really good thing. The worst professor in my university, the guy with the lowest teaching evaluations. I once came into a room, and, and I had been really nervous about class that day. I said, man, I was so nervous about class today. I was trying some new things. Uh, do you ever get nervous? I said to this guy, he said, nervous? Why should I get nervous? Well, he had the lowest teaching evaluations <laughs> of anybody in the history of the department. When you're nervous, it means you care. When it's, you're nervous, it means you have a certain amount of energy, and yeah. it's up to you how you use it. And can I say just a word more about this, Jackie? I mean, this is an important thing for especially young speakers. Um, one of the worst things you could do when you stand up in front of a group of people, and a lot of people think this is the best thing you do, admit you're nervous. I've seen so many young speakers stand up in front of a group of people and say, oh man, I'm so nervous. They say this to the audience. I am so nervous. And people think, oh, that's so good. They're being honest and everybody's going to empathize with them and they're going to win people over. Well, my reaction to that is this. Imagine you're on a big passenger jet. You taxi out to the runway and you're sitting waiting for takeoff. And the pilot comes on the intercom and says, hey, everybody, I got to tell you, I'm really nervous about this flight. <laughs> I'm really scared, uh, but I'm going to do my best. And, you know, maybe we're going to make it to where we want to go. No, that's not what you want to hear as a passenger, right? Well, there's a sense in which when you're on a stage, you're the pilot. And everybody in the audience, they're the passengers. And so you want to build their confidence in what's about to happen right? And, and uh, the, the cleverest way I ever heard a man admit his nerves before every talk was he stood up in front of a group of 500 corporation presidents and their spouses. And his first words were, 
Well, the mind is a wonderful, marvelous, magical thing. It starts to work the moment you're born and doesn't stop until you stand up in front of a lot of people to give a speech. <laughs> and everybody laughed at that. That was fine, right? But he wasn't standing up there saying, you guys, I'm so nervous about this. You know, uh, so there are good ways of handling your nerves. Yeah. It used to be when I was getting introduced for a talk in front of a thousand or five thousand or even ten thousand people, I would feel my heart rate go up, and I would say to myself, oh, "I'm getting nervous." And then, for some reason, about twenty, fifteen, or twenty years ago, I learned not to react like that. When I felt my heart rate would go up, I would smile and say to myself, "I'm getting ready." That makes all the difference in the world. All the great actors, all the great performers. So many will talk about being nervous before their performance, being really nervous. Um, I had a student come into my class one day, one of the Notre Dame football players, before his first big exam. He said, oh, Professor, I'm so nervous. I said, do you ever get nervous before a big game? He said, oh, yeah, all the time. I said, well, what happens to that? And he says, well, once I take my first hit, you know, I'm good. I'm in the game, you know. And I, I wanted to tell him he was going to take a pretty big hit on the exam the next day. But instead of that, I said, you know, it's the same way here. You can use this energy. The, 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 the guys who don't get nervous are the people who don't care. You care. That's why you feel this nervous energy. Use it well. Surf on it. Make it work for you. Right. Yeah, that's exactly exactly what I say to anybody that's stepping on a stage is if you don't feel nervous, you don't care. And the reason you feel those nerves is because you care. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to um, address the people in the uh, in the in the chat box here, because obviously I made some mistake on LinkedIn and it hasn't gone out. But thank you for those that have turned up from LinkedIn. And if there's any way you can get this across to them, and then then do. But but welcome to uh, to Christoph and to uh, Yellow Tuxedo are here, which is fabulous. And Andy Coley, thank you. Yeah, it's not working on LinkedIn, but thank you somebody for posting the link to it there. But yeah, but Tom, this is great. You have answered at least half of the questions. <laughs> That are on my piece of paper. Just I'm just getting warmed that. up, Jack. Yeah, <laughs> just just warmed up. Do you know? I knew half an hour wasn't going to be long enough for this conversation. <laughs> um, some amazing tips in there for young people because this, you know, this is what this this half an hour is about is is talking to wannabe aspiring speakers and professional speakers that just need to know a little bit more about how it feels to step on stage in front of thousands of people. Um, yeah. You have been on stage with other speakers. Can I ask then, what makes the good ones stand out and the bad ones suck? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, the good speakers, they start off with a very positive beginning that grabs people's attention. I often ask people to name for me the great philosophers, and I throw out Snickers bars or Three Musketeers bars, and, and then I use that for some humor some opening humor about philosophers, about me, about the audience, uh, and it gets people in a really good mood. Um, great speakers open strong and great speakers close strong. They don't just say, well, that's it for me. You know, uh, uh, we're done now. <laughs> that's all I have today. I was uh, in a room with one speaker, a uh, very famous guy who just didn't know how to do it. And he kept saying during his talk, during his talk, he kept saying, am I boring? I hope I'm not boring you. I, I hope this is okay. I hope I'm not boring. He must have said it you know, 10 times. Uh, great speakers have positive energy. 
They tell stories. They use humor. And the important thing is they tell great stories, but they tell short stories. And they use great humor, but they if they tell a joke or tell a funny story, it's a short story. Or if it's a longer story, there have got to be payoffs along the way. Right? One thing about the transition be- between being a teacher, classroom teacher, and a professor is that in, in college or in, in any school, they're there. They've got to be there. In the broader world, they don't have to be there. They've got other things they can be doing, right? Their time is precious. You have to make the most of their time. Give them practical ideas. Give them ideas they can use with great illustrations, with funny stories, engage, move around, be animated, but not frenetic. I saw a tape of one guy early in his career, and he was pacing like the the quintessential tiger in the cage his whole talk. I said, dude, you got to stand still now and then to punctuate your movements, right? And that makes it even more effective. Plus, look at what we're doing right now. I'm talking, I'm, I'm rolling out these sentences on a stage. Now and then you have to pause. And that can be as powerful as anything you actually say. So great speakers know that. They know pacing, uh, body movement. They uh, and, and it's not like you have to study this stuff, you know, the, the, extensively. You just have to be enthused about what you're, t- you're talking about, and you have to let that come through everything you say, everything you do while you're there on the stage. Make everybody feel included, right, in the audience. Make them feel like you're on an adventure together during that hour. And And a lot of people tell me they have, now the new label for this is imposter syndrome. It's one reason people are nervous, right? I mean, I actually Googled before our session today, has anybody ever died from uh, a stage fright? <laughs> you can't find any record of anybody who's ever died. So that's something not to worry about, right? And I don't know of any recent history where a public speaker has been taken out of the world by a hostile audience. So you don't have to worry about that. But people tell me they worry. They feel like, well, who am I to be doing this? You know, that this will cross their minds and they'll get kind of give them, who am I to stand in front of these people as if I'm some big expert on this? You know, imposter syndrome. People, yeah. people in powerful places experience imposter syndrome all the time. And yesterday I was talking to somebody about it and I said, it just suddenly occurred to me. I said, imagine you're a little baby, you're a little child, and you pull yourself up off the floor with the edge of a piece of furniture and you take your first two or three wobbly steps and you stop and you say, well, wait a minute, what am I doing? Who am I to be doing this? I'm not a walker, I'm a crawler. I mean, all the big kids are walkers, they're even runners. I mean, who am I to think I'm a walker? For a little baby to have imposter syndrome because they've never walked before, it's just crazy, right? Same thing for us. Um, You don't have to be the world's greatest expert on your topic, you just have to have something worthwhile to say. And you have to be enthusiastic about saying it. And a good experience can can be had uh, by all. The great speakers know that. The terrible speakers don't. They speak in a monotone. They pace themselves as if they're trying to figure out what the next sentence is going to be, uh, sentence after sentence. They're really boring. And I've been in the presence of very famous people who were terrible public speakers. It was agony. You wanted to give them a standing ovation just for stopping, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a great question to ask. I think passion, I think animation, I think your own just great pleasure in being able to be with people, that will set you apart. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've got one question here that, that's been asked by somebody uh, that's that's listening that actually was on my list. And this is Grace Digby. Who would you say is one of the most effective speakers you've listened to? Oh, golly. That's a really hard question. That's a question. I've heard a lot of good speakers, but very few who stood out because of techniques that you and I can use. The greatest speakers that I've heard in person have been great because of who they were, not necessarily what they did that day. Uh, they were they were great politicians, or they were great military people, or they were great athletes, or they were great at something else but didn't make any big mistakes speaking that would detract from the greatness they were sharing with the room. Now that's not a formula most of us can use, right? Like I don't stand, step up on the stage as a gold medalist, right? Or as a guy who's been to the moon or something. So, so how about the people who are out there? Well, um, Jackie and I were talking for a minute right before the, 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 the show went live today. Uh, there was a, there was a Jesuit, uh, in Spain uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, Baltazza Gracian, and they say that when he walked out his front door, 4,000 people would gather to see what he had to say that day. I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? I have, I don't want to name names of, uh, 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 of speakers because there are too many names that I would name for being the opposite. And so like I say, some pretty famous, some pretty famous people. But some of the best speakers I've heard have been um, athletes because they know what it's like to perform under pressure. And that's what sets them apart. They have a little ritual. They have a little routine to get into their zone. And that's what makes them. Uh, so whether they're, you know, a gym, whether it's a gymnast or whether it's uh, another gold medalist, often I've been in the presence of those folks and they've done a great job because they know how to get into the zone. And that's something we can all do, right? Unlike, uh, say, I used to speak a lot, um, go around the world with people like Colin Powell and George H.W. Uh, and Barbara Bush and, and people like this, who would get a standing ovation for walking on the stage, right, before they did anything. I mean, I had to earn whatever uh, uh, reaction I was going to get from the crowd because who's this guy, you know, who's <laughs> this philosopher? But uh, they, they, they did know how to tell a compelling story. And so the best speakers I've heard have been people who, who could tell a compelling story and bring the audience in. Yeah. yeah. I, d I, mean, I mean, one of my, one of my one questions one for you was whether um, personal stories or, you know, are stories important? And obviously, from what you're saying, they are. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they are. Personal stories can be great if they're not. But you have to learn how to be succinct. The biggest mistake I see speakers make is to go on too long for a story. Like a guy sent me, uh, he wrote out a story he wanted to tell in, in his speech, and it was it was really long. And so I was able to edit it, cut it in half. He had one laugh line for the audience at the end of the story. It was going to get a laugh. But I cut his story in half and, and built it so he would get five or six laughs along the way. <laughs> That you know, the humor is the probably the most important part of us talk where where it's appropriate, and yet it may be the hardest part of any talk. I, I'll even um, write myself notes. How many how many humorous spots do I have? My most popular talks. There's a density of humor woven through what a philosopher's talk, philosophical ideas that can enhance people's lives, but 
you have to enjoy the process of being introduced to these ideas. So I recommend to people, use humor well. Don't tell well-known jokes everybody's heard. Uh, I went through, a, I, I checked out joke books once as a young speaker. Nothing was usable except in one book of a thousand jokes, there was one that I had to alter tremendously to make it good. And then once altered, it wasn't something that people had heard before. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't. You don't. Yeah. yeah. How how do you start then with your with a talk? How do you plan the journey through a talk? Well, usually I just make notes on a piece of paper. I'll I'll have a piece of paper like this. I'll I'll make some notes. Uh, just uh, just uh, stream of consciousness notes, and then I'll start uh, constructing a PowerPoint presentation around my talk. And people misuse PowerPoint so badly, but done well with vivid pictures and big, bold font. And and it, it's something for people to look at other than you, which is great. You know, when I played in bands, I was a guitarist. I loved being in a band with seven people because I would always pretend like everybody in the audience was looking at them, not at me. Right. So with a PowerPoint, you at least have something to, to take attention off yourself. You, if you use it properly, you know, it's it's a great thing. You gesture to the PowerPoint. It's boom, a big, a beautiful picture comes up that illustrates what you've just been talking about. Uh, can be a wonderful thing to do. Uh, plus, it's your secret notes about what comes next in the in 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 the talk, right? Because people say, "Oh, you speak without notes." Well, my PowerPoint. That's that's my notes, right? So yeah. I sometimes create a PowerPoint to see where the talk naturally leads me. And then once I've gone over that enough times, I think, okay, I've got a really logical sequence here. I've got a vivid sequence of stories and humor and, and points to make. I've got some great PowerPoints here. I think I'm ready to give this talk. And uh, I'll alter it along the way. I mean, you, my a talk I've given probably almost a thousand times is a talk called True Success. Uh, what the great philosophers say it takes for success in anything we do. And if you heard me give it 20 years ago and heard me give it now, there'll be a lot of different stories. There'll be a lot of different... In fact, one guy hired me 32 times to give the same talk. <laughs> paid me each hour what Notre Dame paid me my first year of being a, a professor. Uh, and about the 19th, he would always go with me. About the 19th time, I said, aren't you sick to death of hearing the same talk? I, I can speak on other topics. He said, no, Tom, you never do it exactly the same twice. I mean, it's the same basic ideas, but you tell whatever stories are in the newspaper or on TV or some movie you just saw. He said, you're always keeping it fresh. Plus, I'm at a different point in my life each time. There are different things I'm concerned about that week. So maybe I'm hearing things you said before, but I'm hearing them in a new way. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like the Beach Boys playing Little Deuce Coop for the 3,000th time. You know, it never gets old if you keep it fresh, if you keep it new. Yeah, because, I mean, that's something that I find even, in, you know, from doing podcast guesting, is yeah. that you you do end up telling the same stories. And it's just that wonder whether, you know, not that you've got the same audience all the time, apart from that one person in your audience. Um <laughs> But yeah, do 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 they get boring? There's a question here from Andy Coley that is, uh, it's it, he says it's ex, it's important to get coaching and external advice when it comes to your talk. Is that something that you've done? Have you used an external coach to help you with your your speaking? You know what? I, I I've never done that, but um, like I say, I gave talks for two years for free. So what were people losing if I didn't do the greatest possible job? But the cool thing was from day one, lots of people in the room would recommend me to friends. So apparently I was doing a good job from the from the very first. I have a hard time watching myself on, on video, but I will 
take notes uh, away from my talk and try to improve things. Like I, I, recently in April, I gave a talk on a topic I'd spoken on many times before, and I just spontaneously said something that got a big laugh at the end of the talk. And I said, okay, I got to write that down and do that again. because that. So it was a talk with a lot of front-loaded humor to get everybody in a good mood. But then as we moved through the talk, it was more just serious ideas. And I realized I needed some, a, a big a big release, kind of a psychic release toward the end. So I wrote that down. Okay, use this in the future. And think, is there anything else you can put in? So it's like almost like self-coaching. But uh, I, I think in the executive world, uh, executive coaches, life coaches, you get somebody who's good, uh, they can really speed up the process for you. So, yeah, I think it can be immensely helpful. Yeah. I think uh, in terms of, of what you do too, uh, Tom, is just being there and doing it. Uh, and we've got a question here from John Wren, who says, do you see classroom teaching, which we kind of touched on earlier, classroom teaching as a form of public speaking? Why and or why not? I mean, and obviously that because you are in front of a class and you, you were doing that for a certain amount of years, I think that does help. Tell me if you disagree. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the well done. It's the well done classroom teaching where this idea of the classroom is a dramatic arena. If you transfer that over into public speaking and if you don't take it for granted, it, too many teachers take their classrooms for granted. They, they students have to be here. They've got no other option. They're here for a grade. Uh, I can do whatever I want to do. They got to put up with it. There are a lot of professors who kind of take that attitude. And boy, you tr try to transfer that into public speaking. It's not going to work at all, right? Um, the quintessential lead balloon. It is not going to work. People will be leaving that room because the students can't. They can't leave in droves, but people sure can in other settings. So I think if you do teaching right. And you realize that, you know what? Sure, they're 10 years old, they're 16 years old, they're 20 years old, but their time is just as precious as if it was a room full of CEOs. Uh, their time matters. Every minute matters. And you make the most of that time in the classroom, you're going to be a great public speaker. Brilliant. Brilliant. Are you okay for for another couple of minutes, Tom? Yeah, We're just sure. Gone Absolutely. But I've got a question here from, from Mark Masters, who you may well know. Uh, he's one of the greats. <laughs> yes. Apologies, Mark, from, uh, for, for managing to delete the, uh, the, the LinkedIn lead uh, stream <laughs> for this. Um, Mark says, uh, question is, is it better to be articulate or have bags of charisma to keep your, personal, uh, to keep your audience on side? You don't have to choose, Mark, for sure. <laughs> you got it both. You got both things going on. I think, you know, being articulate is almost like the price of admission, right? Uh, to be a public speaker, you, you've, you've got to be able to say things well. And, and sometimes you have to practice that, right? Succinctness is a skill. It's really an art. And, and to use language in ways that are beautiful and engaging and inspirational, that takes work. Right. And Aristotle said you learn by doing. But the more you can practice that before you start the doing, the better. And yet the charisma, you know, nobody's ever been able to really define what that is. Although it tends to really circle around positive energy. One of the things my students would, would talk about at the end of a semester, they would talk about my positive energy on course evaluations. I love Professor Morris's energy. I love the, the joy that he seemed to bring to the classroom every day. This class would wake me up every, every morning. See, I loved stuff like that. It was because I cared about what I was doing. 
that they started caring. And this was the class that became the book Philosophy for Dummies uh, all, all over the world. But, um, you know, charisma is, um, is just passion. It's just your, your total buy-in, first of all, to the people you're talking to, and secondly, to the ideas you're, you're presenting them. I, I put the people first, even before the ideas, because I think that you can have good ideas. And if you really care about people, they come across as great ideas. Yeah, beautifully said, beautifully said. We're going to take uh, literally one more question from Christoph, who says, how many, let's have a look, how many people have to be listening for it to be public speaking? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, my smallest audience that I can remember uh, was 11 people. It was a CEO and his uh, 10 direct reports. And I did two hours for them in a room. Um, uh, well, I've done that twice. I went with 11 CEOs on another occasion to Costa Rica for, in the jungle for a few days, and we philosophized together. I think that was public speaking. Um, so, you know, if you can get your spouse to put up with you, uh, giving a little talk, maybe that counts as public speaking too. I came home once from a, 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 a speaking uh, trip where I had a lot of talks in front of a lot of big audiences, and I was really excited about something. My family, I get home, they're cooking dinner. And I keep trying to tell them about something that happened along the way, and nobody's listening to me. It's obvious that nobody's listening to me. And I got really frustrated. I said, guys, guys, you guys aren't listening to me at all. People pay me to speak. And my wife looked up from the pot she was stirring, and she said, I'll pay you to shut up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, not everybody's always in the mood for a, a public oration, right? They're, they're busy. You're going to have a good dinner because of their busyness. So you, would one person count? Yeah, why not? You know, why not get, pour, pour your heart into the, the communication with that one person? And, yeah. and maybe that, that counts as public speaking too, right? Are you in public or, or is it just in private? Uh, what, what makes it public speaking, right? Uh, are, you, are you wanting to share as broadly as possible? And if only one person shows up, pour your heart into it as if it were a thousand. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that's really come across from this conversation with you today is it's really about them. It's not about you as a speaker. It's really about the audience and and yeah, caring that much for them. Um, so just that public word, the word public, because you are known as a public philosopher. Right. Does that mean you have to speak publicly about philosophy? Does Is that what makes you a public philosopher? I, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I was trained in philosophy. I am by nature a philosopher. It's hard for me, maybe impossible, to talk on any topic without being philosophical about it. Um, and I told my graduate students early on, philosophy is a serious business, but it's not somber. You can have fun being a philosopher. And some of my favorite philosophers through history tell all kinds of funny stories and say all kinds of funny things along the way. Yeah, it, 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 it being a, what, what makes a public philosopher? Well, you don't just have to pay tuition and come to one university and on one campus to hear what I do. Uh, I'll go to where you are, you know, whether it's now virtually like this or whether it's, you know, I've got a couple of talks coming up where I'll fly across the country and, and be with people where they are. That That's what makes me a public philosopher rather than a private philosopher. Who still talks to people, but but you got to go to where the private philosopher is. You got to go to Harvard or Yale or Notre Dame or Oxford or wherever. You got to pay the tuition. You got to go sit in a particular classroom that might be a hundred or a thousand miles from your home. I try to go to people where they are, and that's what makes what I do public speaking and public philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And how how has that the transition to Zoom been for you as somebody that is quite 
Yeah, it, it, surprisingly, it's been awesome. Uh, first of all, because I don't say to my wife, "I'll see you in three days." You know, I say, "I see," I say to her, "I see you in an hour." Right? I'm gonna go upstairs. But secondly, when the pandemic happened, everything shut down. All speeches were canceled. All events were canceled. Um, nobody had budgets for virtual speaking for several months because they kept putting off the in-person speech rather than realizing, "No, we're going to have to do this by Zoom." or whatever. Uh, people were calling me and saying, listen, you just did a book about a book called Plato's Lemonade Stand, how to deal with difficult change, disruptive change. Uh, it came out right before the pandemic. We, Our executive team needs to hear this topic, but we don't have any budget for a virtual talk. And I said, that's fine. I'll do it anyway. So for two months, I was doing free talks two or three times a week. When the other uh, public speakers were sitting home waiting for somebody to come to them with a budget. I was getting good at doing talks by Zoom. I did the same thing I did in my career 30 years ago. I did a bunch of stuff for free. And then by the time people had budgets, man, I was already uh, a master of the uh, format. So uh, that's what you need to do. You can yeah. do the same kind of enthusiastic presentation through screens that you can in person. I even have a special thing I send out to people who want me to give a Zoom talk uh, or who are thinking about hiring me to do a Zoom talk. I'll send them testimonials that have just come from Zoom talks because some people have learned that with public speakers who are great on the stage, some of them are deer in the headlights when it comes to sitting in front of the computer. They're just different. They, they don't have the energy to feed on they have in the room, and they just don't do their normal job. So I want people to see, oh, this guy was great. This was the greatest talk we ever heard that came from a Zoom session. Yeah, I, do, I love that. I, yes. And uh, to actually, um, as you say, just learn as you're doing even yeah. if you're doing it for free, I think that's just that's a great piece of advice is just get the practice in. Just do it as, as much as you possibly can. Aristotle, gonna... said, Aristotle said we learn by doing. And, and that was a long time ago. He said that and he's been right ever since. Uh, so I encourage people, you know, uh, put together groups, uh, offer to do it for free for people that, you know, need speakers like your local civic clubs or something like this. And you can't you can get good really fast by doing that. Yeah. Yeah, right. We're going to start wrapping it up now, but I, we've had some lovely comments in. So uh, so Jerry Clark says, uh, pleasure to see and hear Tom in action. Well done. Yay. Um, we've got Emily and Alan Braithwaite here from the Yellow Tuxedo. And Alan, I assume, is saying Emily loves it when I ask her to sit down for a keynote. So obviously referring back to your your wife and uh, saying that she'll pay you to, to shut up. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and Joanna Hooper, who's done a, a TEDx talk, is saying she did a lot of pro bono online right at the start too. So, yes, yeah, and Andy's saying the learning is in the doing. And yeah. Karina Digby-Jones, such an interesting talk, Tom. Thank you. So, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So fantastic to have you here today, Tom. Just before we go, I would like to recommend to everybody to check out your website, which is uh, tomvmorris.com. And yeah, I don't think I've got a, well, look, I've got pictures of you on the stage. I didn't even show those. Look at that. <laughs> there you go. And, and that one as well. What I should have done is had a picture of Everyday Patriot, which is the book that I'm reading at the moment. Oh, good. And 
and is and is great. So although you know yeah. the famous television producer Norman Lear asked me to write that book, he just turned one hundred years old a couple months ago, and uh, uh, ABC Television did this big celebration. My wife and I taped it, and we were watching the celebration when my answering machine beeped, and my wife said, "Wait a minute." That's Norman Lear calling. Uh, he's, but he was the 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 force behind the book, The Everyday Patriot. And my favorite uh, uh, fan mail about the book is from a, a young guy in Romania, uh, from Bucharest, who said, "Reading your book, The Everyday Patriot, wants me to makes me want to be a better Romanian." And I thought yeah. that's exactly what I wanted to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great book. It's a great book about community and looking after your community and just just be in them for them yeah brilliant book as well as obviously Plato's Lemonade Stand I loved too and you know the Oasis Within which are the fictional side of things so yes go check check out Tom Tom thank you so much for your time today apologies to everybody listening for the for the mess up on LinkedIn I do apologize I will uh, I will be posting about that and doing a public (laughs) apology uh, to to everybody on LinkedIn but Tom thank you so much and uh, thank you everybody for for turning up and listening see you soon see you next week Tuesday next week I have Susan Murphy who is a, also a fellow American, and she is a former broadcast and news anchor. So she will be very interesting to listen to too. So see you all next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>